Hey, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. We're going to continue our look at Jeremiah. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 36 today. Um, our computer's still broken, so we don't have the same recording levels that I normally have set and stuff. So I'm going to be kind of adjusting some of this on the fly. If it's too loud, I'm going to apologize. But it looks like my sound levels are good now. All right, let's give it a, let's give it a try. So when I was in college, in my senior year, I needed a leadership elective to graduate. And so a professor that I had knew what I wanted to do with my life, knew I wanted to be in ministry. And so he recommended a speech course for me. Now, I had already been uh, preaching sermons and things like this and had read books on how to preach. And so I have made, I was ahead of the curve in this class, to be like really frank. I was probably the best. I mean, if you can think about it, like... I'm, I'm a pretty good speaker in public anyways. I don't mind it. I don't really get nervous anymore. Uh, but the whole course is just how to analyze, write, and deliver speeches. And so you have me who's been doing it for a while and everybody else who is brand new to it. And a speech for me was like very common to give. And through the course, we had to give like four or five speeches in different forms. And the first time we gave a speech in front of the class, the professor just went in alphabetical order. And that was easy. But when it came to my turn, Nobody wanted to go after me. And so, you know, I, that's okay. It's my job. Like, my job's to pre prepare and write speeches. I was just more polished than, we, than they were. So for the next four speeches that we had in the class, they made me go last every time because nobody wanted to follow after me. And they'd come to me on the list, and they'd just skip my name and make me go last. And when you give a speech, it's important the order that you tell the story or that you tell the speech in is important. You want to have a logical flow that makes sense for the point and purpose that you're making. And so I might not tell, like in a sermon, I might not tell you everything in chronological order and the order that the events happen. Instead, it might make more sense for me to present them out of order because they build on one another towards the point that I'm making. I might be more interested in telling you about a, a theological truth as compared to like a series of events. And that is I may be more interested in telling the truth about God and his, his interaction with his people than about telling the story in the correct order. The book of Jeremiah can be really difficult to read. If you've sat down to read the book of Jeremiah, you know that the book moves from narrative, from story, to poetry to prayer, and back again. And sometimes it doesn't even tell you when somebody else is speaking in these things. So the book of Jeremiah, it's more interested in telling a theology, how God is working with his people, than history, kind of getting the story accurate event by event. And it's easy to get lost in Jeremiah when we bring an idea that this is history. It's the events told in the correct chronological order, and so this, and if we come to Jeremiah with this idea that, oh, this book must be a history book. It's a story of how things happen event by event. It's easy to get lost. When actually Jeremiah is trying to tell us more about God and his work in this place and time. And I just want to briefly show that, that Jeremiah is out of order. And then we'll get into the text and look at why. Because what if Jeremiah plainly told us, what if he plainly told us that it wasn't in order? What if he even told us the year in which these things were happening? He does, he does this, but not in a way that's easy for our culture to understand. See, the Hebrew people had a way of keeping time. They would keep track of time by the number of years of a king's reign. So check this out. 
Jeremiah 1 verse 2 starts out by saying, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. And so we know from history, we know from other ancient Near East sources, Egyptian histories and Babylonian and Assyrian histories, things like that. This, this is the year 627 BC. We know when Josiah was king, and we know when his king start, when his reign started, and when it ended, and we know that Jeremiah was called in the year 627 BC. So then we jump ahead. Jeremiah 21 says the king Zedekiah, and this would be the year 589 or 588. So we've jumped a, a few 30 years ahead, and that's a 40 years ahead. It's a long ways. Uh, the king, and then if we jump ahead to Jeremiah 25 verse 1. It talks about in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. So this is the third king that we're talking about. That's the year 605. And so we've gone from 627 to 598, back to 605. And now Jeremiah 28 says in the, king, the reign of King Zedekiah, a Judah in the fifth month of the fourth year. This is the year 594 is Jeremiah 28. Jeremiah 36, jumping ahead a little bit, happens in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. This is the year 605. So what happens is King, Je King Josiah comes first, and then King Jehoiakim is after him. And then when he is removed from power, one of Josiah's other sons, Zedekiah, becomes king. So in, in Jeremiah 36, it's King Jehoiakim. Then Jeremiah 37 jumps ahead about eight years to the year 597, and that's the kingship of Zedekiah. And so I get it. That was a lot. That was like a shotgun blast. And we've bounced between years and years and years and years. And it's so easy to read over these verses that say in the blank year of King whoever. But those lines inform us that this isn't in order chronologically. And so we're left with the question, why? Why is this not in order chronologically? So today, something interesting happens in Jeremiah chapter 36. We're going to spend the whole time in Jeremiah 36, if you want to flip over there. Jeremiah is told to write down everything that's happened so far in a scroll. And this scroll is going to be an important character in this chapter. And this chapter reframes the first 35 chapters. So let's get into this, and we're going to see this. This is Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 1 to 4. In the fourth year, a king Jehoiakim, of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll, write on all the words that I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin." So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them down on the scroll. So this scroll that Jeremiah and Baruch have written, it forms the backbone of the book of Jeremiah. And we've seen that things aren't in order chronologically just by looking at the dates that they're given in the text. So why? Why, though, has Jeremiah written this scroll? Well, He's written it because God wants to remind the people of how far they've fallen. We can see this in verses 2 and 3. Write down all the words that I've given to you, and perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sins. So this is a way for God to turn the people back to him. That's why he's having Jeremiah write this scroll. So we can see then the book of Jeremiah not as a chronological retelling, of the story, 
but as an intervention for the people of God when they've fallen away to other gods. If you remember, the people have forgotten God who rescued them from Egypt and gave them the land. Instead, they've chosen to abuse the poor, the widow, the immigrants, and the orphans, and they have worshiped other gods. And so Jeremiah gets his friend Baruch to come and write the scroll as Jeremiah dictates it. And the intention of the scroll is to allow the people to hear God's heart and to respond to him. It's not about telling the story in order. It's about asking the people, how are you going to respond to what God's doing? So imagine this, right? Imagine that you have to have an intervention for somebody. Do you ever watch that TV show, Intervention? I, I watched a few episodes. It was rough. I couldn't get through very many of them. But imagine that you have to have an intervention for somebody because their life has become unmanageable and it's destroying the people around them. And now you need to step in. One thing that like the TV show intervention does is they show that it's, there are good ways and there are bad ways to have an intervention. And the, and the good ways, they usually have like some of the same elements. You'll start with defining your relationship with the person. You'll express your deep love for them. You might say like, you know, as an example, like you've been my best friend since middle school. You know that I love you deeply and blah, 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 or whatever, right? And you tell how much you love them. And then the next thing you do is you help them to see how much pain and suffering that their behavior is causing. And the, mes- the message you present will be coherent and cohesive and it'll offer a viable solution. Now, you might not tell everything in the order that they happened, but you might pick out some of the strongest stories of the pain and suffering that they've caused. And so we can see why God has Jeremiah write the scroll as an intervention for his people. But what was written in the scroll? Like we can see that this is a, an intervention, that this is God telling the people, here's all the ways that you are hurting yourselves. So come back to me. But what was written in this scroll? Uh, 36 verse 2 says, take a scroll, write on it all the words that I've spoken to you. Write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. And so all the words that God gave to Jeremiah in chapter 1 to 35, all the verses that I kind of listed off before and gave you dates for, those would be the backbone that forms verses or chapters 1 to 35 in the book of Jeremiah. Now the scroll wouldn't, wouldn't occur anything that happened after the year 605, like uh, the stuff of King Zedekiah wouldn't be in there. That'd be added in later on as a way to give more context to what Jeremiah is talking about. But we can see the scroll of Jeremiah as an intervention for the people of God. And chapters 1 to 35, what they do, everything that we've looked at so far, is God defining his relationship with Israel and him reminding them again and again how he is their God. And then he tells them how their idolatry has hurt themselves and him as God. And time and time again, he has offered to save them. And we can see like our theme verse for Jeremiah, the the verse that kind of, I think, most encapsulates what Jeremiah is talking about is 616. It says, thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But the people, they said, we will not walk in it. And so see, we can see God is asking the people to see his deep love and to see the pain and suffering their behavior has caused. And God is giving them a solution. 
Verse 3, turn from their evil ways so that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God's hope is having Jeremiah write this scroll is that they will repent and turn back to him. And perhaps this is you today. Perhaps today God is asking you to meet with him for a relationship checkup. How is your relationship with God? What are the areas that are causing pain and suffering to the people around you? How about that anger, your lies, your failure to care for your family in a way that honors God, your pride? God wants to meet with you to offer you a way of dealing with those in healthy ways that grows you as a person. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. But for now, Jeremiah and Baruch, they develop a plan. I need to summarize a few verses here for brevity. So in verse uh, Jeremiah, he can't go to the temple without being arrested. And so he develops this idea with Baruch that Baruch is going to go in there on a day of fasting. That's what he does. A day when everybody would come in from the villages and the city, they come into the temple and they would hear kind of what the people have to say. And, Je- and Baruch reads this scroll. And upon hearing it, the leaders are alarmed and they pull Baruch aside. And they ask, who wrote this? And they say that these words must be given to the king. And the officials tell Baruch to leave the scroll and go and hide with Jeremiah. And so now we'll pick up at verse 20, 36, 20 to 26. After they put the scroll in the room of Elishama, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. And the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear and did not tear their clothes. Even though Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Jeremiel, son of the king, Saraiah, son of Ezrael, and Shelemiah, son of Abdeel, to arrest Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord has hidden them. Okay. I think we're back. And so King Jehoiakim, he rehears all the words of the Lord through Jeremiah again. And he hears everything from chapters 1 to 35 again. And the response of the king to the message of God is, I can destroy this. So as it's read to him, he cuts off each column and burns them in the fire. He is the king. He has that authority. That doesn't make him good though. Authority does not equal goodness. And if we look back at one of the verses we skipped, Jeremiah 36, 16, it says, when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear and said to Baruch. And so the people and the officials who hear this word, they're in fear. They're taking this seriously. But compare that with the king and his servants, 36, 24. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were alarmed, nor did they tear their garments. So how do you respond when somebody gives you a hard statement about yourself, when somebody tells you something that's true about you but is difficult to hear. A mentor of mine had a piece of advice. He says, if one person says you look like a horse, that person's probably a jerk. But if 10 people say you look like a horse, you might want to think about buying a saddle. I can remember a particular argument that Sarah and I had 
in the car while driving somewhere. We were living in Southern California at the time, and I didn't like the traffic, and I didn't like living there because of the traffic. I loved our church, but I didn't like its location. I am not a city person. And so I'm frustrated in traffic, and I'm driving, and I lash out at Sarah. And she says something like, I know you're not mad at me, but all of this kind of gesturing to the traffic, but you're taking it out on me. She said, you're taking it out on me. You're not mad at me, but you're taking it out at me. And that was it. I was convicted. I was convicted. And I felt about an inch tall. And I could have disagreed and I could have became angrier. Have you ever seen a, a child in the middle of a temper tantrum declare, I'm not mad? That's how I could have looked. But she was right. I was wrong and I felt about an inch tall. And I say this because we, we have a choice. We have a choice to how we respond to the message of God. We can stomp our feet and declare like a child in a tantrum, I'm not mad. That person's just a jerk. Or in the moment that Sarah said, you're just taking it out on me, I recognized my own deep need for a saddle. King Jehoiakim, as this was read to him, made a choice, a king's choice. He could choose to recognize his own need for a saddle. But instead, he chose to ignore the warning from Jeremiah via Baruch. And his advisors who urged him not to burn the scroll, he made a choice. He's the king. Why shouldn't he make the choice? This threatens his way of life and his authority. To repent is to admit that he's not in charge, but that he must answer to somebody else. Poor leaders struggle with accountability structures. Poor leaders will undermine the accountability structures that should be asking them difficult questions. And any leader who places autonomy, the ability to decide on their own over accountability, having others speak into their leadership, into their ministry, is not worth following. Any leader who places autonomy ahead of accountability is not worth following. We don't need to be a leader who makes, who makes choices and makes all the decisions and stomps their feet. We need, we need to be a leader who owns the mistakes in our own lives, who places ourselves under accountability structures. We don't need to be a leader to make the same mistake in our own lives either. We don't need to be a leader, somebody in ministry, a pastor or a king to have this same mistake happen to us. So like the king, we too can choose to place our own autonomy over accountability. In a toxic way, the worst of us live as though we don't need the opinion of others, but instead they need ours. You can consider the person in your own life who you told to accept your toxic behavior, even as it undeservedly hurt them deeply. And if you can't name them, I'll tell you who they are. It's the people that you claim to love the most who your sins hurt the deepest. Hold on to that thought. There's a couple of things to hold on to now. So where do you need a relationship check-in with God? Who are the people that are hurt by your failures to live under accountability when you've chosen to go your own way in autonomy? Hold on to those questions. But for Jeremiah and Baruch, their scroll is burned. It's been burned in a fire. Now what? Reading ahead, verses 27 to 32. This is the last set of verses. After the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, <coughs> the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll, write on it all the words that, you, that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. 
Also tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and wipe from it both man and beast? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. So Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to the scribe Baruch son of Neriah, and as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. So we see here in the text that God calls Jeremiah to write another scroll. Include everything in as before, but add more this time. It's like saying, last time I held back, but I won't now. And the scroll now has a second purpose. No longer is the scroll just an intervention for the people. It's a proclamation that because their king has failed them, they will be thrust into exile. They will lose their land and their homes. The king's body will be thrown into the wilderness. It is the failure of King Jehoiakim that brings the destruction onto Israel. There's a theological message in here for leaders about how you are to lead. And this is the theological message of Jeremiah. The book isn't written chronologically. It's written so that everything up to this point, the first 35 chapters, is now seen through this lens. The disgrace of the word of God by King Jehoiakim is seen as the ultimate betrayal through which all of the preceding chapters are pointing. This is the culmination of the, of the act one of Jeremiah, of the speech that he's given, of the reason he's written this. The people have heard the message. The king has heard the message, and they failed to heed the warning of God to come back to him. Now, because they haven't come back, their actions are causing them to be destroyed. For a minute, let's think about God's law, because we often think about God's law as something we can break, and then God punishes us. Like, I break God's law, and then God punishes me, or something like that. When I think God's law is closer to the law of gravity, like if I were to climb to the top of our church building with a big S painted on my chest, a cape fluttering behind me, I'm dressed as Superman, and if I were to throw myself off the church building, would I break the law of gravity? No, of course not. I would prove the law of gravity as I broke myself. And when I apply myself against God's law, I don't break God's law, but I end up broken having proved the law in the process. Let me put it maybe another way. If you have a sibling, you probably remember playing the game, stop hitting yourself. If you're an only child, did you ever play stop hitting yourself alone? It would be stupid to play stop hitting yourself alone. A solo game of stop hitting yourself is just sad. But Israel here is in the middle of a sad game of stop hitting yourself all by themselves. They keep applying themselves against God's law and they keep ending up broken. All the while God is pleading with them, please stop hitting yourself. No one is making you do this besides you. It's kind of like the life of an addict. We all need the relational check-in with God a time where we can come to him and hear his pleading in our own lives to stop hitting ourselves. My pride, my anger, my whatever is the punch that I give to myself that hurts not just me, but others around me as well. 
And here in Jeremiah, the scroll is the lens through which we interpret the first 35 chapters. It is written like this, so that when you come to this point in the text and you go, oh, this is referencing everything that's happened so far, you're supposed to go back and reread the first 35 chapters so that you can see kind of where they're pointing. It's like a Nolan Ryan movie, like, uh, oh, um, Shutter Island with Leonardo DiCaprio or, um, geez, what, The Prestige or something like that. You're supposed to kind of go back and, and see this. Oh, this is where this has been pointing the whole time. And so Jeremiah, he has this incident with the scroll. And he has, and he, it's the final nail in the coffin. It is through this lens that the people of Israel can understand the depth of their own evilness. Through the scroll, they can understand and see themselves as people who have walked away and fallen away from God. And what we need today is a lens through which we can interpret our own lives and measure our own relationship with God. How do we go about having that relational check-in with God so that we can see where are we at? We need a lens through which we can see ourselves. And that lens is the cross. On the cross, Jesus died a painful death so that you can stop hitting yourself. The relationship checking with God happens at the foot of the cross where we understand our own deep brokenness, our sin, the evil things that we've done to ourselves and to one another. And our brokenness has caused others around us to feel ashamed, hurt, and wounded because we've failed to deal with our own bondage and our own baggage. And at the cross, we meet the one who bears all of our baggage, who takes every shame, hurt, and wound. And through the lens of the cross, we interpret our own lives. As we are crucified with him, we are remade in his image. And so today, we have the opportunity to come before the cross and cling to it in recognition that we have no other way of dealing with our own hurts, hang-ups, and habits. And that's what this time of Lent is about. It's not about giving up something, although that may happen. It's about giving up something so that you can replace it with a time with God, a relational check-in with him, where you're able to consider the cross to which he pointed his face so that you might be able to examine how your face looks in the reflection of the cross. So I pray that this week you would have time when you would have an opportunity to come to the cross, to see Jesus, and to see how he sees you, and to find your own relational check-in with him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, very thankful that while we were sinners, you died for us. Would you help us to see us, to see ourselves? Would you help me to see myself as you see me? Would you let me know the areas of my life in which I am still broken and hurting? Where am I hurting the people around me? Lord, I, I would like to know that. I would like to know how I can do this better. I just ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.